Welcome to San Diego Sessions. We're here in the studio with drummer and percussionist David Whitman. Listening to San Diego Sessions, San Diego's jazz podcast, featuring local artists, new releases, and more. Here are your hosts, Ian Tordella and Ed Kornhauser. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to San Diego Sessions. We hope you're doing marvelously well. Marvelously? Marvelously well. I like marvelously better. Marvelously well. Marvelously. I like that word. I think we just invented a new word here. I decided, you know, you have to draw the listener in, but then I I totally bungled the whole thing. But uh, we hope you're doing great out there. We're here in studio, as my co-host Ed Kornhauser mentioned. We're here with David Whitman. Good morning. Good morning. And I'm your host, Ian Tordella saxophonist and intranational man of mystery. Uh, anyhow, but before I start rambling too much, we too have our, our usual segment. I know you've been dying with anticipation to hear this week's version of This versus That. I have been physically ill. Now, these are, are two musicians or uh, public figures of note, and Ed's going to pick one. Hmm. So Simple as that. Simple as that. So first up... These guys both came up in the 1990s, uh, towering figureheads of the jazz idiom. Um, mallet player, uh, vibraphonist, and percussionist Steve Nelson, or alto saxophonist. Uh, I love his work with piano player Billy Childs, alto saxophonist Steve Wilson. Hmm. That's a tough one. I mean, I, I'm inclined to go with Steve Nelson because I've listened to him more as a as a sideman and as a leader. Although I know, wait, I mean... You like Steve, the Dave Holland, Dave Holland band stuff? Yeah. I mean, and and Steve... Wait, didn't uh, didn't Steve Wilson also play with Dave Holland? Am I totally crazy about that? I am i don't know. Was he on that Dave Holland big band stuff? Uh, Probably. Huh. I'm going to go with Steve Nelson on this one. Although I'm not sure, I'm not, I don't have an encyclopedic knowledge of either of their discographies, <laughs> but uh, of what I've heard, I'm, I'm more inclined towards. All right, we're, uh, we're Steve already Nelson. floundering here. Yeah. No. <laughs> we're already confused. Okay, this next one is easy. Uh, we're going back in time here. Uh, iconic clarinetist Artie Shaw, or um, the piano player. I think we did this one once. The pianist who intimidated all other pianists, oh Art yeah. Tatum. I mean, duh, I got to go with Art Tatum. Art, the piano started there? No, of course, it's Art Tatum. Absolutely. I mean, he was just a, a, a machine. He was a monster. And and I've said this before about him, but everyone remembers him most for his virtuosic stride playing, obviously. But his his sense of harmony was really ahead of its time, especially 
when he's just playing solo. He has these really cool passing changes and alternate harmonies, and and it was definitely a precursor for what was to come. And I mean, he's just a monster jazz player who also had this insane technique to back him up, of course. And what's the line from Horowitz that you know Vladimir Horowitz said? If Oscar Peterson starts seriously playing classical music today, I'll quit tomorrow. Is you mean he, if if Art Tatum? Did I say what you said? I say? Oscar Peterson. Oh my God! Well, uh, <laughs> sorry, I meant Art Tatum. Far. I I also have like I mean, you want to get Oscar Peterson without Art Tatum. He's sort of I think there is a natural progression in terms of pianistic um, evolution. True, and, true. Okay, last one. We're back. We're back on the Steve train. Uh, <laughs> he's known for playing trombone and other other instruments. Steve Ture. He plays the shell, I think. What is that? He the conch shell? shell. Yeah, I've seen him with that. Yeah, <laughs> or saxophonist and head of the M Bass uh, Collective, or whatever you'd like to call it. Steve Coleman recently mm. did a fourteen night residency in L.A. Wow, those exist. Yeah, he just played two weeks at the Blue Whale every night. I was wow. sad, sad to miss that, but wow, shoot! And Steve Coleman also. I mean, sorry, Steve. Uh... Steve Touré, also famous for his rat tail. I don't know if he still has that. See, I told you, yeah, it was it was 1990s. Uh, oh boy, yeah, it's nine, it's 90s day. My shirt kind of looks like <laughs> I mean, like the it's best thing day. about growing up in DC and being on the jazz scene in the 90s was like the hairdos of, that people had. You can just imagine, just it was just a cornucopia of different hairstyles. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to go with uh I'm going to no disrespect to Steve Ture or his choice of hair. Uh but I'm going to go with Steve Coleman. All right. <laughs> Steve Coleman it is. <laughs> well, once again, we're here with David Whitman and uh he's got a record that he uh did this come out this year or last year? Uh this came out in uh September 2016. Okay, so about a year ago. What mm-hmm. what's it called? Oclara. Cool. Named yeah. after my uh my daughter. When we recorded the record, my wife was pregnant with my daughter, Clara, who's just turned two uh, about a week ago. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's, a, it's a record with a it's rhythm section and a bunch of horns, but mixed, uh, mixed ensembles on different it's tracks. Jazz septet yeah. on all the tracks, um, except two tracks we ah, did just trio. Okay. So, but the whole record is jazz septet. Okay, cool. Very cool. And it's, it's, it's a, not to use that word again, Ian, but it is a cornucopia of who's who in, in jazz, especially out here on the West Coast. There, are, yeah. There's, uh, you know, it's, it was a privilege, really, to to be able to make the record with such fine musicians. And uh, you know, every time I get to play with those guys, I thank my lucky stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we're going to talk some more about it, but first, let's hear a tune. This is "Feeling All Right."
And that was a track called Feelin' All Right from David Whitman's uh, new record, and that featured David Whitman on the drums, Andrew Neasley on trumpet, Tom Lure on tenor, Francisco Torres on trombone, Tomek Miranowski on guitar, and Jeffrey Keezer on the piano, and our very own Rob Thorson on bass. Yeah. Now everybody's feeling all right. Yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed. That that was great. That was a was a real slick composition and really nice arranging, and of course some great soloists too. So, uh, who wrote all the compositions for this record? So all the compositions were written by Andrew Neasley. Um, Andrew uh, lives in New York City. He's a uh, works in the jazz studies office at the Manhattan School. And uh, man, he is. I've never worked with such a gifted arranger, and he can turn around a jam in. No time at all. Hmm. How'd you how'd you meet? Uh, Andrew and I went to school together at the University of Wisconsin Eau Claire. Oh, very cool. Man, we must we must have played, you know, five hundred thousand gigs together over the course of the years. But uh, you know, I, every time I need an arrangement, he's a guy I go to. Yeah, he's the best. And we were talking on uh, before we started. The title is actually a a, a double pun. Eau Claire. A double homage. A bunch of you guys are from Eau Claire, Wisconsin, or have a Wisconsin connection on this record. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so the title, the story with that title is uh, that my daughter, her name is Clara Mia. My, my wife was pregnant with her when we were recording the record. And uh, so this record was kind of made as uh, somewhat of a tribute to her. And uh, her, her name being Clara and the community in Eau Claire that we have ties to uh, the community in Wisconsin that we have ties to being called Eau Claire, uh, we decided to make the record a little play on Clara and Eau Claire, Wisconsin. To dig it. Nice. Yeah. It's, a, yeah, it's a beautiful sounding record. Very, uh, very mixed, like different vibes, and, and, but really nice arranging and compositional stuff. What, what about, um, I know you've played a lot together, but what about his, uh, his specific compositional style uh, led you to want to collaborate with him? And actually, what was the collaboration process like? Did- uh, I mean, those, that's a great question. So to, really to answer that best, I got to kind of go back to the beginnings. I had been teaching at San Diego State for two or three years and really wanted to, in the, uh, for the, the sake of uh, my students and, and the academic world, I wanted to produce something new, have some sort of new artistic production. And um, knowing that I wanted to do a record, uh, Andrew was an obvious choice because his his arrangements and compositions always have a great balance and blend of intellectualism and accessibility. Mm. I love jazz, um, but I like jazz that is enjoyable to listen to and uh, maybe a little bit simpleton in that regard. But I still think first and foremost, music should good music should be you know music that people enjoy listening to it should sound good and be accessible to all listeners and not just jazz musicians andrew does a great job of just having the best of both worlds Mm. um i think his melodies are great and they're catchy the tunes are fun to play with and when i spoke to him about the arrangements i wanted to go for that kind of vibe and having worked with him before i knew that he would be able to be on the same level with me uh on that stuff and our, our rapport, I think, lent itself well to producing a single-minded result. Did, and, uh, of course, you get to take advantage of his trumpet playing, too. Oh, so. yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that was just a killer solo he played on that track. Mm-hmm. Um, it was great to hear him. And, of course, Jeffrey Keezer was a San Diego resident for a while. But Yeah, um, yeah I'm very excited to, have some, uh, to hear some Jeffrey Keezer on the podcast today. Like, wow, he's just, oh. Well, yeah. I was excited to have him play on the record. Um, 
the opportunity to play with Jeff and all these other great musicians is really a privilege that I don't forget and I am ever grateful for. Um, and Jeff, Jeffrey's father was actually my second drum set teacher. Wow. Uh, my first drum set teacher was, I think I was 13 years old at the time, but shortly thereafter I went to Shell Lake Jazz Center, uh, the Shell Lake Indian Head Art Center Jazz Camp in, in the woods of northern Wisconsin. And yeah, Rod, it's just a hotbed of jazz. Oh, it, it really is. <laughs> where, no, where, no uh, you wouldn't, you'd be surprised. Wow. But man, it's, it's the, yeah. I think it's the longest running jazz camp in the nation. No right way. Now. Yeah, Indian Head Arts Center. Um, but uh, so, yeah, Ron Kieser taught at that camp, and he huh. taught at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and so that kind of led me into school there. Uh, but that is, you know, part of my connection with with Jeffrey there. So wow. very, so, and very Jeffrey, fortunate. Jeffrey's, uh, I guess, I'm guessing he's a little bit older than you, or what's, I can't. Yeah, Jeffrey probably maybe a bit. Uh, is maybe six or seven years older than I am. Not, okay. I'm not sure. So you guys weren't like in school together? No, he had, in fact, well, Jeffrey, He right was probably already school, on the road. Yeah. yeah. When Jeffrey graduated from high school, he took the our Blakey gig. Yeah. Not yeah. bad, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's on the bad gig. He, well, he had a choice, as I understand it, between Miles Davis's band and our Blakey's band. I mean, that's kind of like getting right out of high school and you play basketball and then you go straight to play for the Knicks, mm. you know? Jeez. <laughs> And and he's but. he's a guy whose whose um, musical influences and breadth and abilities really span like a very wide spectrum because he can he can play some of the most modern cutting edge kind of music and then he's got that hard bop swinging language down so well too like uh, let's talk about like accessibility and also like intellectual stuff he's got it all in his in his under his fingers it's amazing I mean he was the uh, as some of our listeners might know, he's the last pianist with the Ray Brown trio as well, uh, and has that just like oh god, he sounds so good. That's Sorry. right, and he's you know, I've, and I'll, I'll tell him this myself. He's my favorite piano player, hands down, and he uh, he always makes it his own, no matter what it is. Uh, he if he's gonna do it, he's gonna he's gonna do it in a way that he's comfortable with, and yeah. that he feels like he's expressing himself, you know, with with the appropriate voice. Um, but you know, it's in addition to Jeffrey, I mean, all those other guys on the record too, they sound so good and I don't want to take away from their playing. Yeah. Um, you know, Francisco is, I've, of all the horn players that I've ever played with, he's the only guy that really, really puts his heart and soul into every single note that he plays. Mm. And every time he plays, he plays like it, like it's the last time he's ever going to play. Wow. And, uh, and I have so much respect for him for that. And you know all those guys play great. Tom, Tom's uh, Tom's tone is just like butter. You know he's he's got such con- control on that instrument. Yeah, on the uh, tenor, he has such yeah, a, just Ian, a consistent sound from bottom to top. Yeah, he really um, does. And of course, Rob, you know, Rob drives really hard, swings really hard. And, uh, Tomac's got a great sound on the guitar, and uh, and Andrew's sound on the trumpet is just. He, there's none like it. Yeah, you know, you can you can pick his sound out. He, he, I think he's playing in Bobby Snobbery has been right now. He's been playing on a f- few records with him, but uh, cool. But he's doing a good job. Well, as, as a rhythm section, you and Rob and Jeffrey have such a good hookup. Speaking of just swinging and and keeping the groove, uh, did you guys get to play before the session? Or I mean, I know that well, Rob Thorson has worked with with Jeff on a, on a few things. So yeah, you know, some Rob, history Rob there. and Jeffrey and I had played together separately before in the past. Uh, but this was the first time that we 
we came together. And I think this brings, you know, if, if we're going to sit down and discuss the record, one important thing that the listeners need to know is that Chris and I, who produced the record, we wanted to go about this in the old school way. Chris, Chris, uh, sorry, Chris, Chris Montgomery. Montgomery. So he so, was yeah. the, the other guitar player on the right. record. He, he, yeah. yeah, he played on one track. We'll hear a bit of him later. And he's also a San Diego resident. Yep, he lives in San Diego. Um, so we wanted to go about this the old school way and try to catch some of the, just the energy and the magic that you get when you're on a, a session where the guys come together and they play and they do the session and that's it. Uh, we did have a brief rehearsal a few days earlier um, and most of us had played together in various contexts before, Yeah, but all the tunes on the record were done in, in one or two takes. Um, we did three takes on a couple tunes but we really tried to capture that spirit of what what happens in the moment, you know. So um, a lot of people taking chances and that hookup that you're talking about, you know, that just that just happened. Yeah. And you know, f- especially for me being the the producer and the drummer going into this, and I have so much respect for these players. Um, my mentality was just, you know, and it's this is my mentality when I play really with anybody in any situation. Just lay down the time and let these guys sound good. And so, you know, when I went in, that was my, you know, my personal part of my personal approach was to just provide a comfortable foundation so that, you know, Rob and Jeff and everybody can hook up and sound good right. together. <laughs> well, and the the three of you have such a strong sense of time. Like I've seen Rob. I mean, Rob was on my old podcast, which was called Dirty Thursdays, which we did a bunch of live in studio stuff. But he played a bunch of duos on there, and I saw, I saw Jeffrey Keezer do a duo with Joe Locke, and yeah, in both those situations, like you can actually really hear just such strong and well-defined time, even though there's no no drummer or percussionist or you know. Well, that time I mean, is essential. You know, if it just doesn't, if if someone's not taking responsibility for the time, it just doesn't even work. Yeah. So I think Jeffrey, <laughs> Jeffrey and Rob and I, you know, time is something. You know, we, it's not like we, it's not something we need to speak about. You know, it's just understood that you know that's one of our most important aspects of what we're doing is making sure that we're playing with good time. The language we speak when we're playing music with each other depends on time you know and the notes the value from the notes comes from the space between the notes so if we're not playing in time we can't even have those conversations that you're appreciating when you listen to the to the record that's true like uh, time is is such a crucial element of the jazz language it's not just about harmony and notes and you know harmonic stuff and and it's just about the feel you know it has to have like a pulse it has to you know even if it's out of time and even if it's it has to have kind of a a driving force and time is such an important thing. Mm-hmm. Speaking of time, I think it's time for my lawn guys to uh, trim the front yard. I can hear some leaf blowers and, and weed whackers here. Um, so David, you're also uh, a very fine classically play- trained percussionist. Well, and, that's uh, very nice to say. Uh, <laughs> at least according to everything I've read on the I internet. I just try to be adequate on a yeah. daily basis. <laughs> um, what, what was your first instrument? Was it a percussion instrument? You know, that's a great question. Um, someone asked me this the other day, and I, I don't think that I was able to give a great answer. I think my first instrument was probably my voice and my body. Hmm. You know, three, four, five, two, one years old. 
singing and hitting and playing and clapping and my parents played music and my brother played music and I was always around music and I loved music. We had a piano at home. Oh, good. We had guitars. My brother had a trombone. I experimented with all those things. But uh, in fifth grade, when it came time to pick an instrument in school, I knew I was going to take the drums. So yeah, in in terms of academic studies, uh, percussion was the first. Although in, in second and third grade, I had to take piano lessons to to play percussion later on in school. So I did have a few years of piano. It always uh, helps. I mean, just it helps shape your concept of music and your concept of harmony. I think even if you never learn, get to a performance level on piano, piano was so important. Yeah, absolutely. Who were uh, some of your early musical influences? Yeah, early musical influences. So many to, to name, that I can't even name them all, right? But, you know, Lou Reed, Eric Clapton, Count Basie, Ron Kieser, um... Led Zeppelin, the Black Crows, all the early hip hop guys, uh, LL Cool J, Cool Modi, yeah, Eric B and Rakim, Third Base, wow, um, Downtown Science, uh, Duke Ellington, uh, um, uh, Miles Davis, of course, John Coltrane, uh, Branford Marsalis. Uh, the whole Marsalis family really oh, yeah. went in, you know, out of this world. Doc Severinsen, uh, Minnesota Symphony Orchestra, uh, uh, Nexus Percussion Ensemble, um, Gene Kolbeck, uh, excellent West African percussionist in Wisconsin. Um, I, I studied West African drumming with him for many years. So, you know, early min- musical influences... <laughs> It's a difficult question to answer because there's so many. My brother, mm. my my mother, my father, uh, the television, the radio. Uh, I don't know who's it. I am the king of wishful thinking, <laughs> and I tell myself I'm over you. Huh. I pretend my ship's not sinking. You know, all that's, I love, yeah. you know. This I, is the first time we've had spontaneous singing on this I podcast. I soaked up. <laughs> nice. I mean, I, I Two would. Two leaf blower accompaniment as well. I think every drop of music that hit my ears oozed musical information into my subconscious. And it's too difficult to put my finger on any one early musical influence. Well, it you sounds put, like. In you your, put your fingers on a lot right now. That's, yeah. that, that's our, we're, we're, we're the sum of our parts. You yeah. Know? I mean, growing up, it sounds like you had a lot of exposure to music. I mean, for me and some people, or a lot of people I've talked to, it's like you might have music in the house or be hearing music, but it takes a certain event like to be awakened to it. I mean, for me, it wasn't until I was maybe 11 or 12 that I really started to think of, oh, music as an art form or really heard it, you know, it got into my brain. Um but I don't know. It sounds to me like for you, it happened much, maybe much earlier. Uh, perhaps uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. I um, mean, what was the first artist you heard that really like helped you cross that line and and think about life in a in a different way? You know, I I just can't answer that question because I I don't think I had one artist or one instance of that. Um, I, I all I can remember is that I always knew that I was going to play drums and mm. be a musician. Yeah, from the very very first time I have a memory of anything. And uh, all I remember is that I treasured and cherished every recording I had, every cassette tape, and every uh, song I heard on the radio. And um, that's that's as far as my memory goes. 
So there's no one. I don't think there's any one influence. You were you were just you were born to be a musician. I think so. Yeah. At least that's what I had tricked myself into thinking. But um, <laughs> yeah, same I here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, know. I had to root around to figure it out, but now I'm pretty dead set. I'm pretty certain this is what I'm supposed to do. I don't know. It might be might be accounting, but <laughs> I don't know. I'm debating. Are you still know. out on that? One? I might go back and get my CPA. I don't know. Uh, so in addition to studying with Jeffrey Keezer's dad. Uh, you also studied with two other drummers who uh, I both lo- I, I love them both, but I, I just think they're at, at different ends of the spectrum, which is kind of cool, but perhaps not because you studied with. Wait jo- a minute, I, there's something my mind's been stuck on yeah. since the beginning of the question. Yeah, Ron Keezer is a great musician, and you know I think an amazingly swinging drummer. I don't know if it's been a while, maybe since he's played, but holy cow, studying with him was a wonderful experience good to get that that kind of influence in early because you said you were you were probably what 15 13 or so? 13 14 yeah yep. um after after you studied with him though you moved on to study with a couple of other uh drummers uh joe morello from uh of course dave brubeck quartet fame and also dave king from the bad plus fame and I'm a huge fan of both of them, but I always have thought like boy, they they come from very different places. But maybe I'm not so correct. Like, how would you f- feel like studying with both of them? Like, no, absolutely, they they do come from very different places, and um, I think that dichotomy is also at the heart of the aesthetic of the record that I produced as well. Um, that intellectualism is really important, but again, that accessibility is is a real key thing for me from a personal preference standpoint. Um, David King loves to do things a new and different way, and he does them new, newly and differently very well. And Joe Morello has a musical philosophy that is a little bit more in line with my own when I like to play. Hmm. And um, I think the experiences I had with both just helped me to become a better David Whitman. Um, David King very much into the avant-garde stuff um, but he he challenged me a lot in terms of technical capacity and um, helping me discover what was possible from a, a technique standpoint on the drum set Joe Morello as well um, in terms of efficiency and flow um, and touch and sound quality um, so I think I just tried to take the best things that I could from, from both teachers um, David King I took lessons with him once a week, every week for three years. Joe Morello, I would take a lesson with once every three weeks. I'd leave Jazz One rehearsal at UW-Eau Claire on a Friday at 3 p.m. and drive through the night and take a Saturday 11 a.m. morning in, in West Orange, New Jersey. Um, wow. And crash on a couch in Manhattan and then drive back and get back into Eau Claire, Wisconsin on Sunday night. So I oh did that boy. every three weeks. And I actually wrote a grant research grant through the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire to help pay for my trips out there to take those lessons on a regular basis. Oh, boy. Um, I, I wrote that grant with the help of my percussion teacher at the time, Jeff Kroll. I've, I've driven that. I've driven that route before myself, actually. And yeah, yeah it's a boy. I can't imagine just doing that every three weeks. Yeah, it, but it was completely worth it. But one thing that I took away from Joe Morello is my lightning rod philosophy to playing. And that is <clears throat> when I'm playing... Now, nowadays, when I'm playing drum set, um, I always try to act, be constantly asking myself, what is the music asking me to play at this point in time? 
rather than what are the cool little technical interjections that I can throw into what's going on. Instead of that, I try to be more of an opening recept, uh, receiver uh, to what's going on, try to listen more, and and only play what the music is sort of asking me to play at, at that point. So more of a lightning rod rather than you know a chef throwing ingredients into a pot. Oh, this will um, sound cool, or this will taste cool, or you know, like, yeah. this is tasty. This is cool, but not not really paying attention to the overall context. Right. Instead, listening and going, okay, what's happening? What does the music need right now? Well, the music needs this from the drums, uh, so need need based, and and then trying to support the other players uh, rather than draw the attention to myself. I think that the drums. I should have an equal voice with everybody in the group, but that doesn't mean that they always need to be overpowering the conversation. Dig it. Nice. Well, let's uh, hear, hear another one of these tracks from the record. Um, before the show, we were talking, and you mentioned this was one of your, your favorite tunes on the record, and it's, it's actually called Untitled. Untitled. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And this features, uh, I believe, we, the other track we heard featured Tomek on guitar, but this features uh, Chris Montgomery, who's also producing that's right. right. Chris Montgomery is another San Diego musician, uh, co-produced co the, the album with me, and this is the track that he's playing guitar on. Cool. Let's take a listen.
You're listening to San Diego Sessions. Subscribe on iTunes or listen online at DirtyBoulevardRecording.com. I'm Mandy Joe, and here's your jazz forecast for January 7th through the 14th. Sunday, January 7th, the Whitney Shea Quartet plays on the patio at the Bernardo Winery in Rancho Bernardo, playing some high-energy jazz and blues from 2 to 5 p.m. No cover, and all ages are welcome. Dancers, too. Vocalist Leonard Patton and our very own Edward Kornhauser play their first Sunday engagement at the Turf Supper Club in Golden Hill from 8 to 11 p.m. No cover, and it's 21 and up. Monday, January 8th, guitarist Louis Valenzuela hosts his regular Monday night jam session at Rosie O'Grady's in Normal Heights from 9 p.m. to midnight, no cover, and it's 21 and up. Wednesday, January 10th, trumpeter Gilbert Castellanos hosts his regular Wednesday night jam session at Panama 66. Listen to the best jazz San Diego has to offer right in the middle of Balboa Park. Music is from 8.30 to 11.30 p.m. Come early to see the Young Lions play from 6 to 8 p.m., featuring up-and-coming musicians from around the city. The Ed Kornhauser Organ Trio plays some late-night jams at 7 Grand from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m., featuring guitarist Michael Borowski and drummer Charlie Weller. No cover, but you must be 21 or older. Thursday, January 11th, vocalist Lorraine Castellanos continues her second and fourth Thursday residency at Panama 66 from 6 to 8 p.m., featuring Ed Kornhauser on piano. Progressive jazz outfit Nexus, led by saxophonist Gabriel Sundy, releases their new album, Nexus 4000, at the Whistle Stop. Music starts with opener Orchid Mantis at 9.30 p.m. No cover, but you must be 21 or older. Just across town, there's a new jam session at the Ken Club, hosted by saxophonists Robert Dove and Ian Buss. Music from 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. There's a $5 cover, but musicians get in for free. You must be 21 or older. Friday, January 12th, Bay Area saxophonist and flutist Mary Fettig plays at the Handlery Hotel in Hotel Circle from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m., joined by bassist Justin Grinnell and drummer Duncan Moore. No cover and your parking is validated. The Friday Happy Hour is a regular series put on by Holly Hoffman, so stay tuned for more great jazz. Composer Joe Garrison and his mixed ensemble, Night People, play their newest book of music, The Broken Jar, at the Encinitas Library at 7 p.m. Tickets are $15 online and $10 at the door. All ages are welcome. Euphoria Brass Band plays some new original New Orleans-style jazz at Dizzy's. Music starts at 8 p.m., $15 cover, and all ages can get in. The stellar hosts of San Diego Sessions, Ed Kornhauser and Ian Tordella, play duo in the lobby of the U.S. Grant from 5.15 to 7.45 p.m. Just across the street, Gilbert Castellanos presents Jazz at the Westgate, an intimate series in the Plaza Bar at the beautiful Westgate Hotel. Music is from 8 to 11 p.m. Saturday, January 13th. The Rob Thorson Quartet, featuring trumpeter Gilbert Castellanos, plays a concert at the Chula Vista Public Library Civic Center Branch at 2 p.m. Vocalist and guitarist Steph Johnson and her band play at Panama 66, featuring bassist Rob Thorson, pianist Melanie Grinnell, and drummer Richard Sellers. Music is from 7 to 9 p.m. There's no cover and all ages are welcome. 
flutist Bradley Layton brings his quartet to Northern Spirits in San Marcos at 7.30 p.m. Vibraphonist Anthony Smith releases his book, Masters of Vibes, a collection of interviews with the world's greatest living vibes players with a concert at Dizzy's. Joining him will be Carlos Cuevas on piano, Mackenzie Layton on bass, and Fernando Gomez on drums. Music starts at 8 p.m., covers $20, and all ages are welcome. Sunday, January 14th, Ed Kornhauser plays solo at Maritalia Restaurant from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. The Zimzi Quartet plays Gypsy Jazz at Panama 66 from 6 to 8 p.m. Sassy Sunday with Lorraine Castellanos at the Turf Supper Club is from 8 to 11 p.m. Come hear some jazz and blues selections at one of the oldest piano bars in the city. No cover, but you must be 21 or older. You're listening to San Diego Sessions, San Diego's number one jazz podcast. You're listening to San Diego Sessions, produced by Dirty Boulevard Recording Company. And we're back here on San Diego Sessions, coming to you almost live from Dirty Boulevard Recording Company. Uh, once again, our, da- our guest is David Whitman, and we heard a beautiful tune called Untitled, and right after that we heard Strutting Home. And now it's time for our weekly extravaganza, the San Diego 7, featuring Edward Theodore Kornhauser. Yes, we're definitely going extravagant on this. Uh, so this is the San Diego 7. These are seven rapid-fire questions. All right, I'm ready. That we'd like you to answer from the top of your head and the bottom of your heart. Okay. Don't, don't freak out. There's no out. microphone by my heart right now, though. Uh, oh, shoot. So, oh, wow. We could arrange that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're monitoring him on a polygraph machine as we speak. Right. Yeah, I'm setting it up right now. <laughs> All right. Number one, coffee or tea? Tea. Tea, right on. I'm, that's but I honestly, I typically drink coffee more often, but I prefer tea. Dig it. Uh, number two, uh, what did you listen to on your ride over here? Nothing. Silence. Wow. Silence is golden. Bold move. <laughs> I have trouble listening to music. My speakers are shot in my car. So. Yeah, I have a. It was a. You know, it's a Ford Focus ZX5. Doesn't have a auxiliary plug, and uh, it the dial's usually set on NPR. So nice. And today I I drove over in silence because I was trying to find my way down to this place. Oh, it's like the thing about you turn down the music so you could see clearer. You know, <laughs> it's so funny. I do the same thing. If I'm listening to like loud music or something, or I'm listening to words and I'm trying to find my way around, I can't do it. It's just too much of a distraction. Um, number three, what drummer do you think is underappreciated in the in the jazz world? Oh my gosh, or otherwise, Sonny Payne. Easy question. I mean, jazz musicians. Uh, some of them, I find will. Love him, but by and large, when people think about great drummers, you know, they throw out the big ones, Tony Williams, Max Roach, you know, Philly Joe Jones, Elvin Jones, but man, Sonny Payne was, his time was perfect, his technique was impeccable, uh, he was so tasty, he had such a swing and sound, um, and you couldn't go see him play live and not leave there with your jaw down to the ground. He was absolutely amazing. Well, I know, and, what I, know what I'm going to be doing after this. Oh, man, Ed, we'll, I'll send you some YouTube clips, but there's some specific YouTube clips I have the drummers at Mesa College watch, and there's some incredible, like, there's one, 
extended solo. It must be five or seven minutes long. And I mean, not only does he have the touch and that sound, but he's also like got great stage presence and just like the joy mm-hmm. of his joy, playing. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. He loved it, man. Yeah. He loved every second he'd seen on his face. And I, I mean, I love the Basie band with Rufus Jones after that, but Sonny Payne, I mean, it's like you can't replace no. Sonny Payne. Yeah. What do you do after that? <laughs> Anyhow, number seven. Number four. <laughs> number four. Do you like or can you eat natto? Oh, is it that? The, it's, the, it's the Japanese fermented uh, soybean Oh, thing. that? Yeah. Yeah, the thing they have for uh, breakfast. No, okay, right. Yeah, I know it's, what that is. Sure. Okay, yeah. Um, I can eat it, and I do like it, but I'd probably reach for a bowl of Cheerios first. Oh, my God. It's so... I can't do it. I tried it one time, and it was one of the grossest things I've ever had in my life. <laughs> It's it's just this thing that's famed for just not being a, a yeah. T- and for the listeners that don't know, it's like fermented beans, and they they're like really stringy and goopy, and uh, it's interesting and fun to eat. It yeah. looks like slime, slimy beans on rice. Yeah, it's kind of a breakfast food over in Japan, and it's it's famous for Westerners just are famous for not being able to eat it. So I applaud <laughs> you. I can't do it. I like it. Oh, God, it's so gross. Uh, anyway, sorry. <laughs> Not, though. Uh, number five. Uh, this is a this versus that, kind of like the intro. This versus that. Rational funk or some skunk funk? Oh, boy. It, you know, Those I got to qualify my answer here. Uh, if I'm looking for laughs and entertainment, rational funk. Oh, yeah. Um, if I'm looking for some deep grooves, some skunk funk, man. Because, you know, that, man, those guys are great, you know, the, and Brothers, uh, yeah. Breckers are great. And, that, and, that, and then that particular recording is just slamming. I mean, the backbeat is just, it's deep like an ocean. But, um, man, but Dave King is that funny in person, too. Yeah. And that's just who he is. And I actually I don't I haven't listened to all those rational funks because well, like I took le- them, yeah. I took lessons with them every <laughs> every week enough, for yeah. three yeah. years like I'm, I've seen all that stuff you know but it's I watched one more time and I was like yeah this, this is back- pretty much how every lesson was yeah he's definitely um, I mean that's how you got the gig yeah but you know I gotta say and let me take this podcast opportunity to say it Dave King wherever you are I, I so treasured uh, the lessons with you and I'm so grateful. Uh, to have spent that time with you and uh you know you're you're always uh every time i'm practicing you know you're always with me in that regard and and i just can't thank you enough that might be one of the more emotional moments we've had on this podcast and i dig it i mean that in a really good way well if i could add to that uh since it's star wars just came out yoda floor tom so if you don't know what that is, watch watch all the rational oh, funks. Yeah, I haven't seen those ones. <laughs> well, I'll send you the Yoda floor tom. Okay. <laughs> um, number six, we all have one. What is a useless talent that you have? Something you can do well that uh, doesn't affect humanity at all um, or, your, or your life or, or something just. That... Well, kind of. A, it's not totally useless, but I'm really good at killing bugs for my wife. No, that's... I think that's the main reason why she keeps me around, you know, because <laughs> other than that, why, what purpose do I serve? I don't know, but I know that she appreciates that I can kill those bugs. Good. No, so. that's, you're braver than me. I, I get, I admit I'm a, I'm a bugaphobe. I get freaked out by bugs. 
But then I found out that if I was to scream and run from a cockroach, she would tweet it for the whole world to know. So uh, I don't really have much of an option. You have to hold your ground. That's right. Stand your ground. I got to be the man. Yeah. Stomp. Stomp those roaches. Uh, and number seven, and this is our standby. We asked everyone this. And I'm not going to interpret it, so answer it however you like. Bacon? Not more than once a week. But yes, please. Okay, perfect. All right, yeah, that's a that's 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 a wise decision. All right, and that was yeah. the San Diego Seven featuring Ed Kornhauser and our guest David Whitman. Um, David, back back to our story. Uh, you have back to the drums. You've got. Uh, you mentioned you're working on a new album that uh, I, I know you're going to be recording it this year. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about the new project and and what well, your concept um, is. In terms of the specifics, I don't want to give too much out too soon, but I can say that Steve Jenwick's on board uh, again uh, to do this one, and Steve was really the, That's the, the heart he and soul. Was, uh, he was the engineer. On yeah, he was the recording yeah. engineer and the mixing engineer. Um, he uh, uh, he's on board with this next one, and, and he's really the heart and soul of the sounds that you hear. And Steve's great. Steve was uh, Al Schmidt's assistant for all those years through everything. Uh, and he really wrote the book on how to record the big band, and you know he's, he's just widely revered as the best. And uh, yeah, you know, Al, you mean? Al, yeah, Al. yeah. Al and, is just a, leg- a legend. If those... you don't know anything about engineering, Al, mm-hmm. if you if you heard a classic big band recording that you loved, it, there's a, like a eighty percent chance Al Schmidt did That's it. That's right. So and and Steve was right there on every single one of those. Um, yeah, Al, Al's right hand guy there, or left hand guy, or whatever. <laughs> hand guy. Uh, so, but you know, just having worked with Steve a little bit, I can tell you that I personally am thrilled again to be to be doing another record. Um, Steve is such a such a professional and uh, has such a great musical ear, and uh, I have no doubt that uh, he's going to bring a great great touch to the new one. And are you going to do a, a similar lineup like a quintet type thing, or are, do you have a different idea? Yeah, I got actually I got a different idea. Uh, but, <laughs> so that's. You'll have to find. I see out. the light yeah. bulb going off. Yeah. Right, right. We, we, we won't. We'll just. We just want to tease it. We won't. Uh, we won't uh, let the cat out of the bag quite just. It's going to be swinging. Cool. Okay. All right. We'll yeah, keep. We'll keep an eye out for that. And actually, we'd love to have you back on the show. Um, the very instant it comes out, you oh, know, okay. before you do those in, interviews for Downbeat and, and NPR and yeah. and uh, all the jazz radio stations. You want to begin we're, first we're, here. We have first dibs. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, but uh, real quick, before we take it out, what are some some upcoming gigs you have in 2018? Um, well, uh, so I do a lot of work with the union here in town, and um, man, I'm gigging so much, I kind of just take it week by week. Uh, so off the top of my head, it's t- it's hard to list them all. Oh, great, you printed them off from my website. We have a handy list. Oh, and you know what? I hardly ever get to, um, to update my website. But yeah, um, we got... Steven Schick's uh, Inuk Suite at uh, the Mexico-U.S. border in, uh, as part of a percussion festival at the San Diego Symphony in January. That's going to be great. And in February, I am doing a, a session at uh, the California All-State Music Education Conference. Um, so we got that coming up. I'm also And I'm that's sh- going to be a, a drum kit thing, right? Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that'll be yeah. Uh, supportive big band drumming. <laughs> Um, so we're talk, talking, talking about, about Sonny Payne, yeah. Yeah, uh, talking right. about, exactly. Talking about, um, you know, how t- basically capturing my philosophy that I kind of started to outline a little bit here on your podcast. How do you uh, 
be a drummer that first and foremost supports the sound of the music overall and helps make everybody else sound good. Um, that's because that's kind of at the core of my philosophy there. And then, uh, uh, you know, there's, I think there's, you know, it's probably a dozen things intermixed in there as well. Uh, other stuff that's going on, but yeah. And if you, if you want, you can always go to my website, davewhitmanmusic.com or oclara.com or davidwhitmanmusic.com. And you can find, you know, lists of things that are going on there as well. Great. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on. We're looking forward to, to having you back when the next record's finished. And, it's a, uh, really a privilege. Uh, it's actually more of an honor, I think, to be here. I was, was kind of surprised to get the you invitation. flatter us. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Um, yeah. We're going to check it out with one last track. Oh, boy. Yeah, th- I think this track is called, speaking of supportive drumming and your whole philosophy, this last one is a trio track. And it's called Quiet. And again, yeah, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your your passion for music and drums with us. Let me, and let me just say about Quiet. We did Quiet here. This was one take, um, and it's it's a polychordal tune. And uh, Andrew, <clears throat> it's one that Andrew had written some time ago, and it was just really great to see where Rob and uh, Jeffrey and I took this tune in one take. Uh, I think it's one of everybody's favorite from the record. So I'm really excited that you're playing this one. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the San Diego Sessions podcast brought to you by Dirty Boulevard Recording Company. Please subscribe now on iTunes or listen online at dirtyboulevardrecording.com. Theme music composed by Ed Kornhauser. Performed by Ed with Grant Fisher guitar, Harley Magzino bass, Ian Tordella saxophone, and Charles Weller on drums. If you'd like to be a guest on San Diego Sessions, please contact us. All musical selections are used by permission of the artist. San Diego Sessions is engineered and produced by Ian Tordella at Dirty Boulevard Recording Company.